listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in the intellectual discipleship of the church and of civilization generally. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal, Pietas, to sign up for our newsletter, and to make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceronianSociety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society. And before introducing our guests, please join me in a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording this on the morning of September 21st, 2023, and I am thrilled to be joined today by my friend Nate Roberts. Nate is a composer and multi-instrumentalist and founder of Michigan Academy of Folk Music, and he is also, importantly, perhaps obviously more importantly, husband and a father of four, soon to be five. Um, We'll tell you more about the Michigan Academy of Folk Music here uh, in the beginning. Um, We're recording it here in Holland, Michigan, where the Michigan Academy of Folk Music is, but we plan to do much more than that, because I personally think the implications of what Nate envisions here have much broader implications, not only for music education, but for education generally. And I also think there's an opportunity to consider some questions about how much or how music intersects with discipleship within and beyond the church. And those of you who have been around the Ciceronian Society in recent years know that that question of discipleship and what it looks like um, is, and how academics in particular can be involved and how scholars can be involved is very, very important. So let's start with this, though. Nate, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. What is the Michigan Academy of Folk Music, and how did it get started? Great question. Well, I'll try not to go all the way back to my birth, but I grew up uh, I grew up playing bluegrass music, and bluegrass music, for those who may not know, is highly improvisational style. So this kind of led me down a journey where I got into the education world through jazz, and through my academic career, I was studying jazz performance and jazz composition, and I did enter that world upon graduation as well and taught for seven years at Hope College here in Holland, Michigan. I was kind of, I had this growing desire to expand what I was doing to include younger and younger people, as I saw that many of the students, by the time they reached music education, certainly in college, but even before that, they simply did not have the foundation required to really thrive as creative professionals. So, you know, obviously, I kind of thought maybe I would be the one to tinker with early music education. And so, Uh, Michigan Academy of Folk Music was born at first, and the basic premise of Michigan Academy of Folk Music is that it's social learning, group classes, and we teach the American string band instruments, which are, if you don't know, mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, and upright bass. And so everything is done generally in groups, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the main thing. The primary focus for us right now is that we offer a youth program that happens during the day, during the school day, which means the majority of our students are homeschooled. Now, uh, you talk about laying better foundations and um, uh, this this group uh, full, uh, this this group style of, of teaching, which I've I've witnessed. What, what what's behind that? I mean, we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of pedagogy, but I think I think you're onto something there. Is that what, what's kind of the guiding philosophy behind that group? Uh, uh, lesson. Um, and uh, what, what's been the fruit of that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking. So 
I could obviously get into the weeds on musical technique and pedagogy and things like that and the benefits for music making in a group, specifically for musical formation. But a couple of the things that I've been mulling and trying to refine as essentially principles and not methods, the first would be, and I think this is pretty broadly applicable in different disciplines, but that content has to follow context. In other words, if you are, if I, to put it back into the music filter for a second here, if I am forcing down a student's throat, these are the proper fingerings for an A flat major scale. While at the same time, the music, the, the student has absolutely no desire or inclination to play an A flat major scale, no idea why one might use an A flat major scale, no creative outlet with which to explore the different implications of what this fingering does for me. It's essentially a useless bit of content, at best pointless, and at worst, you know, I mean, that's, it's something, it's sort of a burden, it's burdensome. However, if you can provide a context that for which that a bit of information or content will be super useful, it's much more natural that they not only are receptive to that information when it comes their way, but they actually tend to ask the question to which that content is the answer before you even get there in a pedagogical, a pedagogical sense. This, <clears throat> to get a little a little technical philosophy for a second, I suppose, th this reminds me of the whole debate about universals and particulars in the sense that this is actually, I don't know if you've thought of this, as it, this just occurred to me as you're talking about it. Um, this, is, this is kind of an Aristotelian way of teaching music in the sense that you, you if, if the abstract or universal concepts of music, what an A-flat scale is, right, in, in that sense, um, the notes themselves and the way that they're arranged, that this, if they're the universals, you only encounter them through the particulars, through a context. That you never, you never encounter information absent of a, a history, of a of a physical of. You never encounter music absent of a place. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting about what you're doing is this is the American string band. This isn't like about well, this is American exceptionalism. We're just going to teach our kids how to sing patriotic music. I go, I go by the way to all our listeners um, when I talk about America. I, I do get a Southern accent. I have, I'm not Southern. Uh, my family does, did live in Tennessee for a while, and I lived in Tennessee and Louisiana. Uh, so I can claim some of it. I'm not making fun of you, um, but uh, at least not right now. Uh, bless your heart. So, uh, but th this also makes me think of something too. So that the universal and particular side of things and how that education is, but it's also getting to this point of kind of the textbook versus the non-textbook way of, of, of thinking. Um, which I think with music is entirely important, right? How do you read a textbook and know how to play music? It'd just be absurd to me. Um, and I'm not sure that's any different when it comes... I mean, I, I used to teach politics, and I think the same is true there. I mean, there, there's an element of the textbook can tell you some things. Um, you, you can memorize the Constitution, but how it actually plays out in, in American history and American politics is, is very, very different. Anyways, so let me... Uh, extrapolate from that, then, what you just described as, as this philosophy, this group education, adding context. How, how do you think this can be applied to other settings, uh, other educational settings? And I think this gets to the, the, the follow-up question I was going to ask on this about uh, homeschooling, um, because this, how we raise our kids and how we think through this way of, of doing music education uh, could apply to other educational settings as well. Yeah. Well, man, there's there's seven responses that I'd like to offer to what you just said, and then 13 answers to the question you just asked. But I'll try to be concise here. So, first of all, just an ex let me extend the content versus context thing, and I think it will help me get about an answer of how it might be relevant. Uh, when I was 
11, 12, 13 years old, I played on a basketball team. I am not athletic. I don't think by nature in any way I was interested in playing basketball. I don't love the game. I'm not interested in any way. But I remember one summer in particular that I went almost every single day to the to the courts near my house and practiced shooting free throws. And I've reflected on why is it that I did that? Well, for one, that was the meeting place between my friends and I. So I had a bunch of friends on the basketball team and that was where we socialized. That was sort of, that was the idiom in which our relationship grew. So I think sometimes about the way that music education is done typically in the Western education system now, the you know, sort of industrialized public education government complex model which is you sit in a closed room with an old man who tells you how to play and then you go home by yourself and you sit and you practice and then maybe you come and you sit quietly in a chair until the conductor tells you it's your turn to come in and maybe someday you may have an opportunity to do something creative but that's certainly not inherent to the system of education the system of education provides you the opportunity to play incorrectly and be punished or play correctly and be ignored. In other words, these are the little black dots. There's a correct answer for which ones they, you know, where you put your fingers to play them. And, you know, you don't compose, you don't improvise. You're, there's nothing expressive about it. I, I think about basketball. If basketball for young people were put into that model, if I went for a private basketball lesson where I had a man telling me, okay, bend your knees, throw this bounce pass at a 90-degree angle. If you work really hard over the course of years, maybe someday you'll be able to join a team. And if you continue on that road, maybe someday you'll play a game. I don't think that would really <laughs> inspire the generations, you know, young kids to want to be like Michael Jordan or whatever it is. So I think sometimes if you can think about the way that this context, the musical context, music is inherently a social activity. And so built into the content of music is the ability to play with one another. And it doesn't take a lot of tinkering to figure out ways to make that happen from the very beginning, from day one. In fact, in many cases, I think sometimes parents will say, well, ideally, I'd like my students to have excellent instruction, but they don't seem to sit still for their lessons. So let's just put them with a group of kids. They'll strum their guitars and sing Kumbaya. And at least I can check the arts box for my kids' education. And the funny thing is you asked about the fruit. I have seen over and over and over again these students who are not pressed toward practicing an hour a day, they're not sent for private lessons, and yet the net result musically, some of these kids are dangerous with those instruments. And not only that, they're highly creative. You know, they're improvising from day one. They're composing from day one. They're listening. They're engaging. They're playing together in time. So as far as that goes, I think on the music front, and you, you did, you kind of hint about the, the textbook thing. One of the other things that we really try to emphasizes that traditional learning, in other words, traditional music learning involved, you know, grandfather on the back porch teaching a fiddle tune to his grandson. And there's much about that that's beautiful. One of the problems with that is generally there were technical issues that, you know, the students would plateau. Uh, they didn't have access to the greatest music education. The formalized system of education that involves kids, you know, learning from a master over the course of their childhood often misses that relational or context piece. And so what we've tried to do as best we can is marry those two models and give the, the best of the by-ear traditional learning as well as the best of the formalized, structured curriculum. Uh, and yeah, so in terms of the fruit that I've seen here, well, I think 
I kind of said this many times to students that when we try to emphasize the musical growth of the students at the expense of relationship, we're sort of putting the cart before the horse. And what I've seen many times is that when you emphasize building a community of young people who love music, modeling and educating them on how to best love music, how to love what's true and good and beautiful, and not putting so many eggs in the basket of technical mastery, it seems that you get the relationship. You get the fruit of the relationship because you put that first. You get the community. And it just so happens that more often than not, my experience has been you actually get the technical mastery as well, and often in much greater quantities uh, and with much more uh, fewer frowns and more smiles. (laughs) Yeah, and, and, and thinking about this too, in in the homeschool context, um, is it, what are the reasons that my wife and I decide to homeschool? I mean, there's a lot. There's there's a lot of reasons um, to do it, but I think one of the most important reasons is just to have a better relationship with your kids, in the sense that you you one of the most important contexts of your learning is your family, right? And so I think you know I, when they learn math and history and um, science that it's that it's not just a text. They're giving context to those things as well, um, and and di- di- different kids are different too. I mean, I think there is an aspect of. Um, <laughs> you, you, I'm I'm wondering. I'm I'm just thinking about. Have, have you encountered people who are just like you know what? Maybe this isn't going to work for you, um, because I I'm I'm very much persuaded by your style. This the style of education. But there are, like, I just think about how I was in, in school. I mean, I was a class clown. I, if, if everyone else is doing yeah, it too. this way, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to do it the other way even harder, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's right. Kind of, it's, uh, oh, oh, this, this is the way you think we're supposed to do it? I guess I'm going to do it that way. Um, I don't know if any of my former teachers would be listening. Probably not. Um, but they, they'd probably be like, yeah, we know, Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is, what, where, where have you run into to challenges here? Where, where have you had to tweak it? Yeah, you know? excellent question. Well, I... There, to, you kind of hinted at, are there students or families for whom our program is not a good fit? The answer is yes. Yes. Capital Y. Uh, there definitely are. But I, I've found that usually it's not for those obvious reasons of, you know, Johnny fidgets in class or, you know, so-and-so has a hard time sitting still. And one of the reasons is, <laughs> and th- this is... Uh, Something so I have an internship program here where upper upper high school students can kind of study music at a higher level and learn how to teach, and then that extends into an apprenticeship post high school for some students who want to study music at a professional level. We have meetings where we talk about we're working through John uh, John Milton Gregory's Seven Laws of Teaching right now, and which is great. Anyone who's never read it, it's short and sweet, great great thoughts about philosophy of education that are simple and easy to read. Uh, But one of the things that we've been talking about lately is to what extent having a high threshold for chaos is can be beneficial. Now, I'm by nature, I have a tendency to be a disciplinarian with my children. And just generally, I prefer silence. I prefer order. And I think that's good. I mean, I I think that should be the expectation. Uh, Having an authoritative posture, I think is, especially in 2023, is really important where authority is so often thrown under the bus as being inherently oppressive or something. Having said that, when you have nine children in a banjo one class and they're all handed banjos, your goal is not silence. Your goal is not necessarily 
that they do exactly what you expect all the time. Your goal is, especially for younger students, I have, I feel it's an, it's awesome or awful responsibility, uh, sometimes that I realize when students come in here, many of them don't have a musical context in their childhood and their experience here will be determinant for them on whether they, for the rest of their lives, say music is something I love or, you know, yeah, I tried that once and it didn't go well. Uh, so one of the things that I have tried as hard as I can to do is to raise my natural threshold for chaos to the point where I can separate out this is a child who's pushing against my authority. This is a child who's expressly disobeying what I, the expectations of the class, the expectation of the teacher. Against music is fun. Instruments make noise. We should laugh. We should smile. When I give someone an idea musically, they are naturally going to want to wrestle with it and play with it. And they have an instrument in their hands right now. We're sitting here playing. I would be do we call it noodling. So noodling is, you know, when you play while the teacher is talking. And we do have a rule, no noodling. Having said that, the the worst, the most egregious noodlers around here are usually first me and second of all, most of the advanced students who, you know, they love music. It's hard to sit and not play. So having said having said all that, usually to answer your question, which families is our program generally for for which families is it not a good fit? It's usually ones who have unrealistic expectations about what our program is. So a couple things in a, in the context of a group class, we have homeschool students, you know, who we have eight-year-olds who are starting in a group class on, on an instrument at the same time as 17-year-olds. That happens from time to time. We have kids who are starting on guitar who've never you know, who've never played an instrument, whose families don't sing, they don't dance, they don't read nursery rhymes, they have no inherent pitch, they have no inherent rhythm in the same class as someone who may be new to guitar, but who's been done four years of children's choir and seven years of piano. And so one of the number one things is finding a way within the curriculum itself to have enough variability that we can at the same time in the same place wrestle with the same musical content, but give variability so that more advanced students can be challenged alongside simpler students, you know, and, and folk music, uh, folk music is a great thing for that because bluegrass music in particular, old time music, Irish music, a lot of folk music, it's simple. The structures are simple, but because it's improvisational, there is spaciousness enough for people to play the same tunes at the same tempo in the same room and be challenged at various levels. So that's one. And I think the other thing that we do get a lot is students who were fed up with the expectations of practice, for example, uh, for, you know, hey, I signed my child up for Suzuki violin and the teachers wanted me to listen to music with them and they wanted them they wanted me to get them to practice so again to go back to the kumbaya strumming we have lots of kid, parents who sign their kids up because they know music is important because their curriculum said so or their friends said so and they know that this is technically going to check that box but they hope it won't require anything of them so and they often are in a in the in for a bit of a rude awakening, excuse me, when they see our parent policy packet, which requires that they sign a form that says, my children will practice five days a week at a minimum for 20 minutes a time, uh, a session at a minimum. And that's just the nature of there really isn't any reason to do anything at all if it's not worth doing heartily as unto the Lord. So. Yeah. <clears throat> so we just in full disclosure, I, my son is in uh, one of Nate's classes, learning guitar. We have signed this disclosure, I mean, the, the, the parent thing, and we've done it. Just want you to know. Um, uh, although about 30 minutes a day, 
I'm I'm not I don't like Nate for about it's thirty a minutes a day. I, no, it's just a kidding. Lot. I mean it's I mean at the same time like I, I I have you know I've tried to do some of the things with him just you know in uh I I have a musical background as well but I I never I never really learned guitar I tried it several times and it's just I I did not have the the discipline um I probably would today but I think but I, I don't know I I also um I, I I have seen the fruit of this I mean I think he uh, my son enjoys. He enjoys the social aspect of it. You know, one of the stupidest things people say about homeschoolers is they're they're not socialized, which is <laughs> is is, is astonishing. I'm just going to say it. It's an ignorant thing to say, um, as if homeschoolers keep their kids in cages when we go home. Please don't talk to other humans. Uh, no, we never did. actually. My kids, I think, have been more more social since we pulled them out of public school than they than they were when they were in it. Um, which is so encouraging. And I think that that's part of it, but also it helps them want to go. It also, there's also an aspect of this too. And I think this is true as he's going to get older, um, especially for teenagers, you don't want to let your friends down. That's right. Peer pressure isn't, peer pressure can make you do stupid things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trust me. Um, I'm not (laughs) going to go on a, a confession route there, but I could also make you do or get you to do very, very good things. Right. Right. Um, it's not all bad. And I think there's, especially in this context, it's a good thing. Right. Um, I also want to say something completely unrelated because you referred to noodling as like fiddling with your guitar, but for the other rednecks who are uh, listening to this, you know, that noodling is when you fish with your arm in a river and you stick it under a log and try and get a catfish to bite it. And you pull it out. Yeah. That's actually also one of our rules. We don't allow that to our <laughs> class either. Not noodling version one or two, both verboten. <laughs> I'm going to walk in with a catfish next time I exercise the last. Um, Can I say, let me, I want to say one thing about the homeschool thing, because this is, so, so Josh mentioned, I have four soon to be five children and we do homeschool our children, but my oldest, my daughter, who's my, our eldest is just in second grade. So we're pretty early on in the journey. And one of the things in terms of the, the most inspiring sort of side fruit of this program for me has been, we have this year, I think, 100 and, 104 students registered, which is it's incredible. It's a huge number of all, almost all homeschooled. And one of the most amazing things is simply to see the fruit of 18-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 7-year-olds, how they are raised, parenting styles. And so many of our families are, they homeschool, uh, you know, for religious reasons, let's say. And many of them, not all, but many of them have very rigor, uh, rigorous expectations and rigorous ways of doing discipleship within their families. And so it's been amazing for me as a parent to just watch the fruit in the lives of these students and the way they conduct themselves, the way they the discipline that they have, the way that they relate to other students. And and yeah, I did, I'll be honest, I grew up, I went to public school, I grew up with sort of an expectation. I knew a few homeschool kids and they were generally, they meant well, but they were, you know, their behavior, I don't know, I just had certain expectations of what homeschooling, it was not something I would have considered as a young man before I had children. And the fruit of it in our lives has just been incredible, not not least of which the re- reason being that we do get to do education together as a family. And it does feel like something within our home when we're doing art studies or composer studies or, or reading books together that it's not delegated off to some other professional who gets to enjoy that relationship of wonder and curiosity with my children. I get that relationship. I get the questions about, you know, the Hobbit. I get the questions about, you know, the princess and Curdie or whatever it is. 
hey, what does this mean? Or, you know, or do you remember that part in this such and such poem where whatever? Uh, that's something I get to share with my children. And it, it creates a unity among our family that's amazing. And so you can see the fruit of that over the course of a childhood. Many of these children are just unbelievable, unbelievable. And I get to see that and I get to observe the parenting styles from a distance. So yeah, three cheers for homeschooling from my front. I <clears throat> I want to conclude this part one of the of this of the podcast with a question about classical education because one of the, you know, we're talking a lot about homeschooling which both Nate and I do um, but you know, for some parents th- there's a lot of practical obstacles to doing that and if you are in an area where it, I, I can't homeschool but it, and I can't necessarily afford the really fancy private school or something like that um, classical education is an amazing alternative it's not available to everybody. Um, and there are some places where it is growing faster than others. Um, there's only a few here in West Michigan where we're at. Um, but classical education is exploding. I know a lot of our listeners are participating in it. You're, you're teachers you're, uh, and faculty in that. You're doing an amazing job. And a lot of this is based on uh, it, the foundation of classical education of the classical languages, right? Latin and Greek. And um, uh, I, I see a lot of parallels between, between what you're doing and what they're doing in the sense that language... Learning a language, like learning a music, is like learning a music. Uh, like learning music mm. is it requires context, right? You, you you actually can't learn Latin and Greek out of a context, right. right? Because so much of it is personalized, right? You're you're learning Cicero's Latin, you're learning Augustine's Latin, you're learning Caesar's Latin, and it's interesting to me how that there's there's overlap here. I wonder, have you had any any students from that classical education background or? Um, what, what what are your thoughts on how the way you're doing this music education overlaps with this? Yeah, excellent question. A couple things about that. One is, you know, homeschooling for us, for our family, is our kids are young. Uh, I love it. I don't know. People have asked me this, like, would you ever consider your sending your children to to a school if there were a school accessible to them that that checked all the boxes? And I, to me especially, I mean, I would say for my son in particular, for a young boy, I think. I'm not sure that homeschool is the ideal for everyone. I think for some students it is. For other students it is for a season. But I think, yeah, classical Christian schools, classical schools in general, I think it's a beautiful model, especially when done really well and really thoughtfully, and there's a lot of energy all over the country toward that type of thing. I haven't had much direct exposure towards students here who go to classical schools, but that is by nature of generally we do. Yeah, but there are a couple options. There are a couple schools in the area, but um, I whether or not this system of learning is accessible or or functional for that context, I would say, I, this is conjecture, but I would want to scream, yes, of course, it goes without saying. Um, a couple things about that. One is, you know, I, I have a, a friend and student who's an administrator at a, a classical, a Catholic classical school in Grand Rapids here, and she's been kind of exploring what should early childhood music education look like. And I think sometimes the problem is there just isn't really a method that's easily grab this, copy and paste it into our community. So it does take some creativity. Now, a lot of my philosophy of education comes from non-musical sources. We, for example, we are, the curriculum we use for homeschooling is a Charlotte Mason based curriculum. And, you know, she was a school teacher and taught in, in, and so a lot of her resources and curricula have been used for homeschooling, but almost all are relevant to group class, group learning in schools. Um, One of the methods I would want to commend to classical 
school administrators, teachers, is the Kodai method. So Kodai was a, uh, oh boy, Hungarian, I think, Romanian. Uh, Somebody's going to yell at me, I'm sure. But a, a composer who got really, really obsessed with the idea of teaching children throughout his country to be more musically literate through the method of singing primarily. And I think this is one of the main missing pieces, honestly, in the music literacy of American students in general. I mean, even for to put it literally into reading literacy, we're very competent as a body of young musicians at looking at little black dots and translating them into where does my finger go? But we miss the middle piece of this should actually mean something to us pre-instrument. And so to be able to read a piece of music and hear what it should sound like before you use your fingers as the referent, which tells you what it should sound like, that's called audiation, the ability to, to, to have audiation while you're reading music, is almost entirely missing from, from musicians. So a singing-based curriculum for young students is so excellent for a number of reasons. One, logistically, you don't need for a small Christian school a startup classical school maybe in the first 10 years, it is a little daunting to say we're going to start an orchestra, which means we need instruction for all the orchestra instruments. We need access to all the orchestra instruments. We need a music library. We need a rehearsal space. Singing takes almost no space. It takes almost no expertise to start. It really takes a willingness. And so starting the process with a model like that is really helpful. And then I, so one of the things we've been pushing here is that singing and dancing are the first instruments we were given at birth. That's where we should start. Parents ask me all the time, what instrument should I start my student on and at what age? And I always say, at birth and with singing. And they don't usually like that answer very much, but that's that's my answer. And so after that, I would say folk instruments actually are a really great on-ramp into music for a number of reasons. One, they're cheaper. Uh, two, the music is generally more simplistic, and there are, there are a lot of easier ways to learn. It doesn't take a high level of expertise to start, but folk music is an amazing on-ramp to all styles of music, and so this is kind of our model here, is we start with basic American folk song and fiddle tunes. In the second year, we begin to introduce other world folk music styles, as well as other improvisational styles, as well as classical music, and by the third year, we're studying gypsy jazz and Brazilian music and Bach and Telemann and all kinds of things, as well as improvisation and composition. Uh, There's a great, I'll end here with one of the kind of guiding metaphors that I always try to keep in mind as I'm making curricular decisions, which is, I I kind of am picturing a tree here and a tree, a, a large, I'm looking at some huge maple trees and a couple oak trees out our window here. They're huge. They would not be able to their branches would not go high or broad without a really robust and enormous invisible root structure underneath the ground. Likewise, the deeper and wider the roots send themselves, the higher and wider the branches can grow. Yo-Yo Ma has this great quote of know something deeply. And I really love that because I do think when you dig into mastery of a tradition, almost any tradition, And I think sometimes people can assume that's exclusive of a broader exposure to music. It gives you access to things that 
have commonality with that tradition such that the more mastery you develop in your tradition, like a tree, you can reach your branches much more broadly. And that has a tendency to expose people to things that are in no way adjacent to the tradition, just from curiosity and love for music. So one of the things that we have tried to do is just encourage people to explore. And once you have the roots down in your tradition, it gives you access to all different traditions. And so it's been a joy to see that and to watch students who you know, play Bach on the banjo or, you know, who are mandolin players and who are really, really into Indian music or things like that. And it's, I mean, it's incredible. So all that said, uh, yeah, I would commend singing as a starting point and then folk music as a really excellent on-ramp into instrumental music, which is cheaper and more accessible for individuals, homeschoolers, and also, of course, schools as well. One more question for this part one before we finish up. Why dancing? Why dancing? Excellent question. Well, uh, can I back up one step further than that? Here is the way that musical discipleship and formation happens at a young age. And if you're doing any of these things, you don't even realize you're forming your children. Number one, hold your very small child to your chest and sing. Number two, put your very small child on your knee and read him or her mother goose and bounce and read rhythmically. Number three, play clapping games. Uh, Sailor went to CCC, this kind of thing. And beyond that, simply do the things that are inherent to human nature. So we will, I mean, people dance. There are very few children I've ever seen or been around who don't dance. The question is, do you give them a way to continue dancing or do you stifle that impulse? So singing gives many gives us many musical foundational things. I mean, again, I don't want to put the cart before the horse and say, from a utilitarian perspective, it's important to sing because intonational foundation or, you know, pitch control or these type of things. No, it's important to sing because we are embodied humans made by our creator with the impulse and honestly the imperative to sing in worship and otherwise. But dancing, I think why dancing from, a, again, from a sort of deconstructive utilitarian perspective, I could say dancing is the rhythmic foundation for music making. We feel the impulse to dance rhythmically. We do so. It, it gives us an expressive foundation. It gives us a rhythmic foundation. It also is an excellent social unifier and social glue. I mean, I think of like, you know, little boys and little girls and 13-year-old and 14-year-old boys and girls learning how to cope with adolescence and deal with their intrigue of one another. The social element of social dancing I think is often missed because we don't do it anymore. But this is how we learned, I think, in so many traditions, the early American folk traditions, this is how young boys learned chivalry. How, how do I treat a young woman in a social dance? What is the appropriate way to receive respect and to give respect and to give honor and to find boundaries and to enjoy one another in a way that, you know, leads us toward a right expectation of what how we should be socializing and how we should be intermingling. So there's a musical element, there's a social element. And I think at the end of the day, there's just the cultural unifier of this is what people have done to celebrate at the end of a long day across cultures, across regions, uh, more or less forever until Netflix. And I don't, I'm not, I mean to diss Netflix. I mean, I like, I love myself a good documentary, but we should be dancing because God made us to dance. Thank you. So this concludes part one of our interview with Nate Roberts, the founder of Michigan Academy of Folk Music. Uh, we're going to continue in part two, which I encourage you to, to continue listening to. We're going to deal with some church music questions as well as uh, music's relationship to formation and 
discipleship. Uh, and uh, if you want to learn more about what Nate is doing, I just want to encourage you to go to www.mifolkmusic.com. I'm not sure why I spelled folk and not music, but <laughs> myfolkmusic.com. Um, and please continue to part two.